Welcome to this St. Mark's podcast, which is the second in a series of two looking at colonoscopy uh, at St. Mark's uh, through the eyes of the Wolfson Institute, uh, which is our uh, colonoscopy uh, institute and research and training uh, service here. Uh, With me is um, Dr. Shuan Thomas-Gibson, and uh, we're going to now look in more detail, first of all, at polyps, their classification, Uh, and then look at the techniques of polypectomy and EMR and and pay some attention to the risks and uh, and the anticoagulation problems that we're now encountering. So welcome again, Shuen. Let's talk about the rather complex methods of classification. Every time I look around, there seems to be another uh, system of classification to muddle me up. Um, but you think you can uh, ca- encapsulate this quite simply for us, for the, for our listeners? Well, I'll try. And um, thanks, Peter. I mean, it is it is a minefield uh, that we that we have here. But there is good reason for classifying polyps. So, if you're on uh, a general, uh, perhaps screening procedure or patient with symptoms, and you find a polyp, it's it's absolutely key that you can confidently describe it. Uh, and there isn't it isn't just so you can use fancy medical terms to confuse your colleagues it really is because uh, all of the um uh, all of the classifications have some uh, purpose uh, uh, either according to the risk of that polyp having uh, malignancy or advanced pathology uh, or the risk in terms of taking it off or the complexity in terms of taking it off um I always say uh, to my trainees that the first thing to do is to look really, really closely at every single polyp because even uh, very small polyps, those of perhaps um, 5 to 10 millimetres, can have a focus of advanced neoplasia in them. And so the first thing to do before you even start to classify a polyp is to wash it carefully to make sure the mucus or any stool is cleared off it uh, so that you can establish the full extent of the lesion. So a raised polyp, for example, may have a flat, uh, what we call a flat skirt around it. And that might be visible just with the the naked eye. Or you may want to use an adjunct such as um, uh, an optical diagnostic tool. So, uh, for example, the Olympus kit will have narrow band imaging there are other uh, optical diagnostic tools or you might want to put some dye spray indica calming dye spray down the scope and that will help you identify the full extent of the lesion and once you've done it the first stage of classifying it is its morphology and very simply put uh, is it a flat polyp or a sessile polyp uh, raised above the surface or is it pedunculated and that would really be um, the typical way of describing a polyp but there is um, some complexity even within that so the Paris classification describes the morphology and really it's it is quite simple polyps are either type 1 or type 2 type 1 one um, are raised above the surface and they're either 1p uh, pedunculated polyps or 1s sessile polyps um, and they're reasonably self-explanatory and then the type 2 polyps are either 2a 2b or 2c type polyps 2a are minimally elevated so um, they're raised just above the surface so they are elevated but very very flat um, Type 2B are truly flat, so they are completely flush with the surface. They are very rare uh, and indeed difficult to identify, uh, but very, very challenging to remove. 
and so if you do find one of those it may well be one that you would perhaps back off and not remove yourself and type 2c are those that are depressed uh, or excavated or what we would think of as being ulcerated um, and and these morphologies are important because they are also associated with advanced neoplasia so type 2c for example are much more likely to have invasive malignancy within them well, that's very nicely described. And then you're looking closely at the surface of these lesions, aren't you? Yes. With another classification. Yes, and again, there are a number of classifications that look at the surface uh, or the pit pattern, if you like, and that's what determines what the histology is likely to be. So the CUDA classification, which was originally described uh, using magnification endoscopy um, and uh, an absorbent dye, something such as crystal violet, we tend not to use that, but we still use the the shortcut of CUDO classification and, and that looks at the types of the pits um, from type very simply from type 1 to type 5. Um, type 1 is uh, the normal round pits, type 2 are hyperplastic um, or star-shaped pits, type 3 can be type 3s so small and round but smaller than normal pits or 3l, l for longitudinal and that they're associated with adenomas uh, type 4 are the sort of brain-like sulcal, again, uh, typical uh, of adenomas. And type 5 is chaos, uh, where there's a loss of the normal pit pattern, and that's associated with, again, advanced either high-grade dysplasia or malignancy. It sounds very easy when you describe it like that, and of course it's not very easy always. I mean, a, 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 a beautiful brain-like adenoma is often easy to identify, but there is complexity between these. But when you start using these classification systems, it will train your brain uh, to, to look closely at polyps and determine what they are. And of course, if you find something, um, they can have, uh, if you find a polyp, they can have more than one of these uh, both morphologies and pit patterns. And that's because any single polyp may have air areas of low-grade dysplasia um, and areas of high-grade or invasive neoplasia in, within them. And so it's important to be able to identify that because you will then manage it in a different way. Just before we move on from the, the pit pattern, there are a number of other ways of classifying it. Some of them are related to the specific technology. So for example, um, Olympus technology has something called narrow band imaging, which doesn't require you to put a dye spray down the channel of the scope. Uh, and that can describe that classifies polyps into three types. And as I say, there are a whole host of others. What I would encourage uh, endoscopists to do is to get familiar with one of the classification systems and to use it and to use it routinely and regularly. Don't worry about learning all of them. Use one and stick to it so that you're familiar with it. And you've got another one, the SMSA, that you mentioned. To me yes, that's right. So the SMSA um, t helps tell us about the complexity of a polyp because Although many endoscopists will recognise that a very large polyp is going to be complex and high risk to remove, we all know that smaller polyps can also be complex and difficult to remove. For example, if it's hidden behind a fold or if it's close to the appendix orifice, it may only be eight or nine millimetres in size, but it may be very flat or in a difficult area. And therefore, in fact, this, um, this complexity scoring came out of work um, done here at St. Mark's. Um, and it looks at the size, the morphology, the site, 
and the axis of a polyp and it attributes scores to each of these characteristics and the higher the score the more complex the polyp and you add up all of the points and you'll have uh, points um, that then categorize into a type 1, a type 2, a type 3 or the most advanced a type 4 polyp. And as we said in the last podcast, really all endoscopists should be able to remove type 1 and 2 polyps if the circumstances are right. Um, type 3 polyps, perhaps every service would have a type uh, 3 uh, or a level 3 endoscopist. So that, for example, would perhaps be a three centimetre polyp uh, in the right colon um, with good access onto it. Then a more advanced endoscopist, senior endoscopist, should be able to remove that. Whereas a type four polyp may be, for example, a large carpeting lesion in the rectum or one that involves the dentate line uh, or a carpeting laterally spreading polyp, another classification, but in the cecum, perhaps close to the ileocecal valve or the appendix orifice, and uh, that's an added complexity. One thing that's really important about the SMSA scoring system is that recently our colleagues Mike Burke in Australia have externally validated this and shown that the level of complexity using the SMSA scoring system is associated with complications and other risks such as incomplete resection and recurrence of lesion. So the higher the score, the more likely you are to have complications, the more likely you are to have recurrence, and the more likely you are to have an incomplete resection. And of course, that's really key in consenting a patient for your polypectomy. Yeah, and now let's talk about the consent and the risk uh, aspect um, with a patient who's you've decided you're gonna need to do a polypectomy. You presumably get consented them before you know for sure that that's going to happen. What are you What are you going to tell them? What do you ask? You know, what do you want them to know about the risks? So some of these things I've already mentioned, and if I um, am going into a, a case where I think there is a polyp and I'm going to be removing it, um, then I will explain to the patient that the ideal situation is that we remove it safely and completely and indeed that's what I say to our trainees those are the only two things we want to do with a polyp remove it safely and completely but there is a risk when you remove any sort of polyp whatever size it is even really cold snaring a polyp and there's a risk of bleeding and a risk of perforation and a risk of incomplete resection and a patient has to know all of those things we give ballpark figures um, and really they are the figures that you would give a patient where you don't know that there's going to be a polyp because smaller polyps have smaller risks and bigger polyps have bigger risks. And so to, to give you uh, what I would say to a patient now is difficult because it all depends on the polyp. But if we talk about perhaps level one and two polyps, then the risk of bleeding is probably less than one in a hundred risk of significant bleeding. And by significant bleeding, I mean bleeding that will require the patient to come back to hospital. But there are different definitions of bleeding, um, you know, bleeding that requires transfusion, bleeding that requires intervention and so on. Um, the risk of perforation again varies depending on the type of polyp. If you're going to be cold snaring a polyp, there's virtually no risk of perforation. But if you're doing a three centimeter EMR, there's a risk of perforation of perhaps one in 250, depending on where it is in the colon. The rectum is very much more safe, of course. And I'll say to a patient that a small or micro perforation at the time of the procedure 
we can usually sort out by clipping, but that would require them to come in if it's recognised and at least have antibiotics and monitoring, um, but rarely would require surgery that rarely would require a, a stoma. And a patient has to know in every case where you're removing a polyp that that may end up in surgery, although it's incredibly rare. And I always warn patients that uh, a polypectomy may be incomplete. I might recognise that because I can't remove the polyp for whatever reason. Or it may be visually complete, but it can recur. And again, the risk of recurrence, as I've already mentioned, um, really depends on the size and location and, and the morphology of the polyp. So a very flat, serrated polyp has a higher risk of recurrence, probably because it's been incompletely resected in the first place. Well, that's a very good summary of, of uh, your approach to it all. What about anticoagulation? Because, you know, I don't know what proportion of patients now over <laughs> 70 are on something which thins their blood, but mm. it seems every other at least. And what, what's our attitude to that? So, of course, I'm going to say you're going to follow guidelines, and that would be either the British Society of Gastroenterology guidelines or in Europe, the ESG guidelines, whatever guidelines your unit will follow. Um, and there is safety in following those guidelines for good reason. On the whole, aspirin, um, a low dose of aspirin, so prophylactic aspirin of 75 milligrams, is safe for virtually all polypectomy, even really EMR, unless it's perhaps in the cecum. And I should have said, uh, going back to the risk of bleeding, the cecum has been shown to be particularly high risk, both for bleeding and perforation, mm, outside of anywhere else. So aspirin pretty much always can, uh, patients yeah. can stay on. Same in surgery. Um, the antiplatelet agents, um, uh, we think for cold snare, possibly now diminutive polyps, so under five millimetres, if they're on a single antiplatelet agent, not dual antiplatelets, um, it probably is safe, but that is emerging literature. And currently, the, most guidelines will say that the antiplatelet agent should be stopped for five days before a procedure. But of course, there is a risk to stopping antiplatelets, and it will depend on the reason they're on them, have they had coronary stents? Some patients cannot stop their antiplatelets. And, you know, if you think about it, many polyps can be left for several months without risk, whereas actually a coronary stent perhaps can't be left without risk of stopping the antiplatelets. So it may be reasonable to do a diagnostic procedure, just identify the polyps and then and defer polypectomy another, yeah, to wise, another another month. Anticoagulants such as warfarin and the newer DOAX, that's a different kettle of fish uh, and they do need to be stopped um, prior to almost all polypectomy, apart from perhaps the very, very tiniest of, of diminutive polyps. Um, and the guidelines will give uh, a different duration of stopping it depending on what agent they're on. So warfarin usually has to be stopped uh, for at least five days and it should the INR should be checked on the day. The DOACs have to be stopped for usually 48 hours um, and then there's the whole question of bridging. And that's a level of complexity that has to be individualised for that patient. And you have to have a system within your hospital to establish uh, the risk benefit of uh, bridging patients with uh, heparin, for example, if they're going to stop their anticoagulants. And it gets quite complicated, and you may indeed have to ask someone who is doing this all the time for their advice in, in that regard. Absolutely. Uh, someone like you. And now, let's get on to the techniques of polypectomy. I mean, just briefly, uh, how do you go about removing a polyp? You've looked at it, you've washed it out, you've, you've assessed its 
pattern, you're ready to go. So I'm ready to go when I've asked my team have they got everything that they need in the room. Um, and quite literally, I, the first thing I will check with our nurses is that they've got clips. Before I ask them what snare I'm going to have, I always make sure that they have got, um, we've got the ability to stop bleeding if it starts happening. So without going through every single piece of kit that you need, of course you need a diathermy unit that you're familiar with. Of course you need a small variety of snares, not hundreds of different snares. Any unit really should only have three or four different types of snares. Have you got clips or coagulation grasp? as something to stop bleeding if it occurs? Have you got some mechanism for retrieving the polyp, a polyp trap or a roth net, for example, if it's a bigger lesion? So I'll make sure that the kit is all present. And then the technicality is that you have to have the polyp in a favourable position, which will usually be in around um, the, the five or six o'clock position. Uh, depending on your scope, it may be six or seven o'clock position. Uh, so right in front of you. So you may have to rotate the patient. Together. Yeah, you might have to rotate the patient. You might have to rotate the scope. You may need assistant to help you hold the scope in the right position. Now, depending on what the polyp is, you may or may not want to um, lift the polyp. If it's a very small or diminutive polyp, we don't use hot biopsy forceps now anymore. And we would usually use a cold snare. And I would encourage you to to use a dedicated cold snare and there are a number of these on the market now because they cut through the tissue very easily. So really cold snare polypectomy is safe in polyps up to certainly around eight millimeters in size and they can be usually used uh, on block and you can take the whole polyp off in one piece. It's really key in every single polypectomy to make sure that you've got a rim of normal tissue around the polyp so that you avoid leaving any polyp behind. Polyps that are bigger than eight millimeters in size, perhaps if they're sessile or flat, um, that may need diathermy, we would usually encourage you to lift up the, the polyp, and that might be just with saline. It may be with saline and dilute adrenaline, or it may have some contrast agent within it as well uh, to, to try and uh, distinguish the borders of the lesion. Using a contrast agent is particularly important in serrated or hyperplastic polyps which are very flat and subtle and that allows you to see the edges and it's also safer then uh, if you're going to use diathermy. Um, a stalked polyp won't necessarily need an injection before you remove it with diathermy. Um, however, my choice is usually to use an injection solution. I always feel that if you're going to get bleeding, um, I would rather have that in a controlled situation. But the key to remember if you do put injection solution in, particularly to a stalked polyp, is that you may be falsely reassured and stalked polyps often have a big vessel in the centre and so often will use a second measure such as a clip or something after uh, you've taken it off. Which ones bleed most often? Which, one, which ones do you fear from the bleeding point of view most? Is it the stalked polyps? Big stalked polyps, yeah. Big stalked polyps, yes. So that's flat. when you need your clips ready yes. in case you want to put one on after you've removed it. Yes, absolutely. Or if it's on a very long and thicker stalk, you might want to place an endoloop before you do the polypectomy. They can be fiddly, um, but it's worthwhile being familiar with that piece of kit to try and prevent bleeding. Right. So the polyps out. It's not. It's not bleeding. Do you put a clip if there's a big if there's a big gap, even if it's not bleeding? Do you close? Try and close the the mucosa. Not on, no. I will. I I tend to put a clip if it's been a quite large stalk polyp. Then I will try and clip. We know from the bowel, UK bowel cancer screening data that those stalk larger stalk polyps are more prone to bleeding afterwards. 
It usually stops um, but uh, and doesn't usually need a blood transfusion, but in terms of inconvenience and concern to the patient, it's not, you know, it's worrying to be bleeding post-procedure. So that will reduce that worry and concern and, uh, and bringing them back to hospital. But a small sessile polyp, even if I've used diathermy, no. If it's not bleeding and it's a nice clean base and there's no evidence of a vessel, then I won't clip it. This is all different to an EMR perhaps, which we'll perhaps come on to talk about in a moment. It's really key once you've removed the polyp to be absolutely sure that you have removed it all. So that close looking at the polyp that we talked about right back at the beginning, it's really important to do that at the end again. So to wash, to look at the edges and to be fastidious and treat any edges Ideally with snare, take off any other residual bits that are left behind uh, and try and retrieve as much of the tissue as you possibly can, either through suction or through a net, for example. So you think you mentioned take any residual off with snare. It's no good just using the argon beamer going round anything which looks a bit... So you, suspicious. So you can do that and there is evidence both for argon beam and uh, tip coagulation around the edge um, and uh, so for bigger lesions we do recommend that. For smaller lesions if you've looked really carefully and if you've taken care to have this rim of normal tissue I, I think there's a, a fear for some reason of taking normal tissue uh, in that it's deemed to be unnecessary but actually that is your that's, that's, safety that's your safety mm -hmm. in terms of the, the polyp not recurring. We know that about a third of post-colonoscopy colorectal cancers occur in the same segment of bowel where a polyp has been previously removed and the implication there is it has that's been good. incompletely removed. Well, that's very important to think of that way. Now let's, we've got about five more minutes to talk about ESD and some of the principles behind it. I'm going to talk about EMR if that's all right. Oh, I don't do ESD. E e EMR. So um, yeah. endoscopic mucosal resection is a term used for larger sessile lesions. Um, and people fear these, but uh, really all you need is you need to have time and patience. And the principles are exactly the same. So you have to have good access. And that might change during the procedure, particularly for large lesions. So you may be able to access one area of the polyp better than others. But with these larger lesions, the interrogation of the lesion at the beginning really is absolutely key. And assuming that you, um, don't, you're not suspicious of any advance neoplasia within the lesion, uh, then you can proceed with resecting it. And rather than lifting the whole lesion, so we would usually use lifting solution, rather than trying to lift the whole lesion at the beginning, um, it is most people agree that it is better to start off with one area, perhaps the area that's easiest to access, and work your way logically around the lesion, trying to avoid leaving what we call islands of tissue. So each, uh, so you lift, resect, and uh, and then move on. Lift, resect, lift, resect. Almost, I say to patients, like doing a jigsaw in reverse, taking the pieces off in reverse. So taking one piece away at a time with the adjacent piece being the next piece. So there's nothing wrong with thinking about piecemeal or resection in this regard. I and mean, that's how you have to do it because they're so big. Absolutely. I think we've, we're trying now to advocate, you mentioned ESD, so an on-block resection of rectal lesions because of the risk of leading, leaving residual tissue. But in perhaps, um, for example, very elderly or frail uh, patients, it would be reasonable to do endoscopic mucosal resection even in the rectum of perhaps those patients. Um, but outside of the rectum, yes, EMR is, is currently the standard of choice in many cases if it's easily accessible and so on and if it's a de novo lesion without 
um, uh, suggestion of there being any advanced pathology uh, or if it's been previously tackled, then EMR is a reasonable thing to do. And once you've got it all off and you're happy you've taken all the abnormal tissue, you've got a big bare area, does that bleed ever or often? Uh, well, um, so yes, it can bleed. And the risk of bleeding, one thing I didn't mention earlier, the risk of bleeding from any polypectomy goes on for up to two weeks after the procedure. So that's something I always mention to patients in case they're thinking of going on a long-haul flight, for example. Um, so uh, the risk of bleeding will, again, depend on where it is in the colon, the cecum being particularly high risk. So if there are, if there's intraprocedural bleeding, obviously you can treat it at the time, either with something like coag graspers uh, or a clip. The problem with clip is that if it's close to um, further adenomatous tissue or tissue that you're going to remove, then it can make that more difficult. But sometimes you have to use a clip to stop bleeding. Um, clipping up the site routinely, um, I don't do that routinely. The patients in whom I do clip the site routinely will be patients who've travelled from afar, patients in whom they have a very difficult colonoscopy. So if you've spent half an hour trying to get to the ascending colon and they have a bleed, you're not going to want to spend half an hour through a difficult um, colon yeah, full of blood, full of blood. That'd be so very yeah, so those patients I will clip, and I will clip patients who are going to go back on to their anticoagulants um, right. or antiplatelet agents. Or those will be the ones that or I'll clip. Someone who hasn't come off altogether. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah, so I, definitely yeah. in that case. I see. Well, that's very interesting. You you you, you talked about anticoagulating co um, with with another instrument. Coag graspers. Coag graspers. I mean, when do you use those? I haven't used those. So they're very much. They, they're a little bit like the old hot biopsy forceps, um, but you don't pull it off, and it is literally you use soft coagulations. You change the settings on the diathermy, and um, it's it's like a, a biopsy forcep that goes through the channel, uh, and you you grab the tissue, ideally you know, the actual vessel, uh, you tent up a little bit and you, you apply the, the heat for, for two or three seconds, wait for two or three seconds and then release them. Um, but right. it does have to be precisely targeted exactly to the vessel. Very, very good. Well, that's most interesting. And we've heard, we've learned a lot in that quite short time of polyps and how you remove them, how you classify them, the risks involved, the problem of anticoagulation and then um, something about uh, endoscopic mucosal resection. Um, these techniques are being done um, now worldwide and they've been remarkably successful, haven't they? Both in preventing adenomas becoming cancers and also the complications seem extraordinarily low for the risk that appears to be being taken. I mean, that surprised me as a surgeon looking on from outside mostly that these really are safe procedures. Would you like to comment on that? They, they are safe procedures, and uh, I, I think they are increasingly becoming commonplace to, to the majority of endoscopists, as I say. And with screening programs, of course, we see these advanced benign lesions that are suitable to be removed. What I would say, however, is that there's virtually never an emergency EMR to do. And so if you come across a large lesion, uh, or indeed many polyps, if you don't feel you've got the competency to do it, then it is safer to take pictures um, and describe it accurately and to back off 
One thing that we uh, know can create difficulty later on is if these flat lesions are biopsied because that sets up uh, a scar and then ultimately makes it more difficult to resect or if it's incompletely resected, so you start a lesion and you can't finish it, either because of the time or the patient can't tolerate it. And of course, we don't routinely consent for more advanced lesions. So uh, given that the patient understandably will have to come back for another bowel preparation, in almost all circumstances, unless it's a planned procedure, we would say if it's bigger than two centimetres, don't do it on that index colonoscopy. Larger lesions that are protuberant or polypoid, if you're concerned or if you've looked at it closely and you're very concerned or very suspicious about very advanced neoplasia, then yes, you can target a biopsy to that area because it may change the plan. You may want to tattoo, usually distal, either to a polyp that you're not removing on that day if you think it's going to be difficult for the subsequent endoscopist to find it or if you think there's advanced pathology, or indeed after removing a polyp, you may want to tattoo, because if there is a surprise with the histology, then they're set and ready to go for laparoscopic surgery. But having the confidence to examine these lesions and to describe them in a way that your endoscopic colleagues will understand is really, really important, together with a good set of high-quality photos. And of course, a lot of hospitals now have polyp MD MDTs, where these complicated... Um, problems are, are discussed Absolutely. and the right solution found. Well, thank you very much for that very coherent uh, words of caution and advice. Uh, I think it's been a splendid podcast, uh, completing the two we've done now on colonoscopy, and we hope to link these to various videos or, or, or links so that people can see, the, particularly with the classification of, of polyps, which is often difficult to take in. Uh, but thank you very much, Shuan, uh, for an excellent podcast. Thank you.